those are the sorts of things you, you that's why you bake in 10 to 15 percent on overage but in this particular case what i'm finding most often especially when i'm coaching or consulting other landlords is the fact that they don't know what they don't know best ever listeners we have launched bestevercauses.com that's bestevercauses.com we profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com and there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. Best ever listeners, welcome to another round of the best ever debate. Today we're pitting Mark Dolfini versus Eric Kotner. Mark's going to be representing the buy and hold approach. Eric's going to be representing fix and flip. And the purpose is not to prove which strategy is superior, but rather which strategy is best for you. And we've got four categories, one, barrier to entry, two, risks, three, potential returns, and four, if it's maintainable in a downturn, they're going to be talking about their approach based on those four categories. And you can go to bestevershowcommunity.com. That's bestevershowcommunity.com. I think bestevercommunity.com works too. You can just do that. And that will take you to our Facebook page where you can jump in the conversation, talk to Mark, talk to Eric. And tell us which strategy is best for you based on this episode, or just ask them some questions that you have about the content and the conversation that took place. So enjoy the episode, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. It looks like we're live. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the third best ever debate. Today, I'm joined by Mark Dolfini and Eric Kotner. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm doing great. And Mark is here to argue the buy and hold side of this debate. A little bit about Mark. He has been a previous guest on the show, and he is a husband, father, U.S. Marine veteran. So thank you for your service. Currently, Mark oversees the ownership, operation, and management of $40 million worth of real estate. He volunteers with various veterans' causes as well as junior achievement. He is based in Lafayette, Indiana, and he has a new book that has recently come out or is coming out, Mark? I've got two books. The Time Wealthy Investor published last year in July, and I just released The Judge a week ago Friday. Okay, cool. So landlordcoach.com forward slash best ever, and you have something set up for the best ever listeners there. They can get the free copy of the download of The Judge, and also there's some videos on there as well explaining the VIP process outlined in the Time Wealthy Investor. Perfect. And Eric Kotner is a personal friend of mine here in Cincinnati. He's joining us. You're in one of your flips at the moment, aren't you? I am. We're actually going to get the professional photos done today and hopefully get on the market this weekend. Very cool. So obviously, Eric Kotner is here to tell us about the fix and flip side of this argument. He has been a full-time real estate investor since 2006. He started flipping in 2011. In 2015, he joined a high-volume flipping company for two years. They were doing five to seven flips per month. Since, he has gone on his own again and has done 15 flips personally. So today, obviously, you guys are debating buy and hold versus fix and flip. And we got four points we're going to hit, barrier of entry, risk, returns, and how maintainable is your strategy in a downturn. So with that, we'll go ahead and start with you, Mark. 
Do you want to tell us a little bit more about yourself? And then we'll dive into the barrier of entry after that. Sure. I started in real estate back in the late 90s. I proceeded to make every mistake you could possibly make in real estate. So if there's, if there's one out there, I'm not sure that I haven't made it a couple times because the first time wasn't expensive enough. So uh, you learn pretty quickly that way. <laughs> but I've done a lot of different things. I've done some flips. I've done a lot of different things in terms of contract sales and, and holding paper and trading paper and stuff like that. But it's all been centered around real estate. But my strategy, which works best for me, is buy and hold. I've always bought things with the eye towards holding onto them. And uh, really, it's been a strategy that's worked out well for me. And uh, maybe it'll work out for some of your listeners as well. I think it already has. And hopefully we can encourage some more unless Eric has something to say about it. <laughs> well, I mean, just like Mark, being this in 2006, I actually started as landlord and owning rental properties along those lines. And throughout the few years I've been doing that, I've made every mistake on the book, just as I'm sure Mark has as well. And I learned that over those few years that just me being in that landlord, it just really wasn't what I wanted to do. It wasn't what matched my skill sets. So down the road, I hired a property manager back in 2008, 2009. I got my real estate license, tried my hand at being a realtor in 2009, which was, once again, we talk about mistakes we made in real estate. Um, that would be <laughs> one of them. <laughs> <laughs> so in 2011, I saw that there was an opportunity to buy properties low, fix them up, and start selling them. And actually, in 2011, when I did do my first flip, I had it under contract within three days. And it was one of those things that I learned that, as we'll talk about later, things you can do in a down market that will still be able to get you to sell your houses fast and make a good profit on them. But yeah, I learned that I do a lot better with dealing with problems that are in front of me with construction work or houses along those lines, and so much dealing with emotions of other people along those lines and having to talk with tenants and everything along those lines and just fitting that skill set fix and flip is good for me and also for making sure that when I go into a project I do it 100% because I know I'm going to be selling off to somebody else so it benefits me to make sure I put an extra little bit of money into it knowing that I'm going to sell it to a homeowner down the road and just only keep it for a short period of time okay I love how you did a little bit of foreshadowing there for the <laughs> maintainable in a downturn Okay, so let's talk about barrier of entry, and we're going to grade each one of these on a scale from one to five. So barrier of entry, difficulty to entry, one being low, five being high. When we get to maintainable in a downturn, one will be easily maintainable in a downturn, five is very difficult to maintain a downturn. So with all that being said, Mark, will you kick us off with your argument for barrier of entry for buy and hold? Yeah, I think I rated that as a four. I will admit that it is hard to get into. That's the one thing. That's the one constant that I hear when people are saying, oh, I want to get into rentals, but I'm going to start with wholesaling and maybe do some flips and then get some cash and then buy some rentals. So from that side of things, I will tell you it, it is difficult. Back when I was starting out in the early 2000s, I just needed to understand how the banks were thinking, what they were looking for in the underwriting process. And that's what I showed them. It wasn't anything other than just learning that. Now, the banks have gotten very, very sophisticated in terms of what they're looking at. They question everything, and it is a lot more difficult to even buy a property that you live in for a few years and turn that into a rental. It's much, much more scrutinized than it was even just a few years ago. So I will tell you, it is, it's not as easy as it was, but I didn't rate it as a five because I didn't want to make it sound impossible. But I rated it as a four just because there is significant capital that you'll have to have to get into a decent property 
and not buy a property that's, you look at the money that's $30,000 get into a rental for that $30,000 rental property. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's not the type of property you really want to be getting into in every market. Some markets it's okay, but not every market is conducive for that. So I will say that I rate it as a four just because of the capital outlay that you'll have to almost always have to have cash or cash equity in a deal. All right, cool. Eric, do you have a response or a question to what Mark just said? He makes a very good point. With all real estate, especially rentals or on fix and flips, there is going to be a lot of capital that goes involved to it. And raising capital, depending on what market you're in, can be the easiest to do or the hardest to do, depending on your skill set levels along those lines. But I completely agree with him. Like Getting the capital, talking with the banks is probably one of the more difficult things to do right now. But for my difficulty level of um, fix and flips, I actually had a little bit lower. And the only reason I say that is because I had it at a three. The main reason for that was mainly for the fact that in a fix and flip, there's a couple of ways that you can either come into it like I did with a lot of capital of your own money to start fixing and flipping. I actually refinanced my rental properties to uh, start fixing and flipping back in 2011. And that's how I got my start. In this market right now, though, too, I've been seeing a lot of people that have been getting their barrier to entry either joint venturing, people that actually have done construction work or have been a general contractor for years are now partnering with actual experienced real estate investors to get their foot in the door to start fixing flipping properties themselves. So if you don't have the capital and you have the skill to be able to turn a house around, that's one way I've seen a lot of people pretty much start um, fixing and flipping before they can build up that capital like Mark was talking about to actually start to do fix and flips on their own. So I'm essentially stating that if you have the skill or the handy skills, you can pretty much learn to mentor under somebody similar to what I did with the high volume company a couple of years ago, or you can use your own money to do fix and flips, which obviously would put that difficulty a lot higher to get that money to start off with. But then after you have a couple of flips under your belt, you can start easily qualifying for hard money loans, going to the bank like Spring Valley that you can put about 15% down and get a lower interest rate than hard money loans along those lines. But if you had the handyman skills, or the money, you can relatively get jumped in pretty quickly to fix and flips. All right, cool. Mark, do you want to rebuttal or have anything to say to Eric? Yeah, I have a question on that because I think that you're spot on and everything you just said is 100% correct. The question I would ask though, because your barrier to entry that you have so far that you've identified is capital. And I think that is the barrier that most people can't get through. What about skill set though? Because I think that is a significant barrier where it's not just being able to do the thing, right? It's being able to do the thing that's appropriate to that property. So you're in the Cincinnati market and it's a great market, but there's still going to be areas where, you know what? Marble is not the best use of this, right? To put on this countertop. But you know that because you've done that. You're laughing because you're thinking, yeah, I've known people who put marble in a not marble neighborhood. So what would you say to skill set in terms of being a barrier to entry in terms of what's appropriate so you don't overfix a property and remove the emotion from it to say, okay, you know what, I need to look at this clinically and say, you know what, this is a Formica type flip and you're not fixing it to what you would like, but to what the buyer would like. So how would you address the barrier to entry there? The barrier to entry along those lines would be essentially going to the RIA meetings along those lines and talking with actually experienced investors. When I talk to people that had the skill sets to be able to go in there and do the properties, I said that their most easiest way of entering is actually partnering up with an experienced investor. And hopefully the experienced investor is going to tell them, this is Formica, this is Granite, this is Quartz. It's funny you actually bring that up because it's actually the first property I'm in now that I actually used Quartz in. 
So because I found it for $55 a square foot. So <laughs> I, I, went, I went a little bit higher for my materials on this one, but you're exactly right. Am I over-improved here? Am I, did I hit the spot on? Now that we're in a um, deep seller's market along those lines, these upgrades on there, I'm not saying you have to go to HGTV level where they spend like $40,000 more and raise the price $70,000. There's no way that's going to work. But an experienced investor is going to tell you, okay, if we can upgrade from granite quartz here, you know, go a little bit nicer, spend about $5,000 more, we can push this price point of, you know, 230 which is why I'm going to be asking for this one, and just kind of see how the market takes it. We're not going too deeply up on there. So for someone starting that has a skill set of being a handyman, I would recommend them that they job shadow a reputable flipper. That way they understand the price points of what to put in for the cabinets. For the ones that do are in the capital that have the money that want to start right away, I would say make sure they go to a REA group, make sure they just talk around. Because then once you talk to people, it's like, oh, $150,000. Yeah, you know, if it's in a questionable neighborhood where it's like half rentals, half flips, I might put granite just for a sparkle factor because no one's really doing it, but mm-hmm. I won't go completely all out on it. Right. Like that would be my one special feature to it, where if it's a $230,000 property, I'll put a backsplash, I'll put quartz to try it out. If it doesn't work, I'm just going to readjust on my next flip that's close to it. Right. So what would you say to the person in terms of barrier to entry that has no skill set in terms of being able to rehab? I mean, they might be able to hold a paintbrush by the right end, but that's about it. Because I think that's a significant barrier where most people are trading their time for money. And that's just definition of a job, right? So if they're trading their labor to do all the work themselves, what would you say to the person that does not have that skill set? It's essentially along those lines of just as you get into corporate America, you can either do an internship or a job shadowing of an experienced investor. Right now, investors, the ones that are pretty much picking up more properties, they need somebody to either help if you're good with numbers, which I learned I was really good with my accounting background of doing numbers, I could do comps and repair estimates relatively quickly. Now my repair estimates, I always give a fudge factor of about 10% in homes that are 1970s and more. If I'm dealing with a 1920 home or more, or in that range, then my fudge factor is close to 15 to 20%. Also depends on the level of rehab. So I've always been really good with numbers. That was the one reason I did join up with the high volume company that I did was because of the fact that within two or three minutes, I could give you a evaluation of property. I could give you an idea of what it needs for repairs. And yeah, we were pretty much within five to 7% of the numbers I said. So I'm not handy at all. I make the joke of it as well, where every time my contractors see me on the job site, they make sure no tools ever get in my hand. Um, <laughs> so, so my strength was my numbers. Along those right. And you could have somebody that is just wanting to evaluate the deal. Hey, what's this look like? And be able to job shadow them and then be hired on as an asset manager or acquisition manager for the title of the company while you're learning and fixing flipping on your own while learning under an experienced investor. Okay, great. That makes sense. But on the same note, Mark, can someone also partner with a more experienced landlord and kind of get the same on-the-job training? Yeah, it's a little bit differently from my perspective because I think where the barrier on that side, it's perceived to be less. Let's just put it that way. Because a lot of times when I'm seeing people that are making mistakes in the landlording business or even the property management business is they don't know what they don't know. That's the problem. So in this particular case, you could get someone that would go in and say, okay, what's it going to take to renovate this bathroom? And you can get three estimates and you know the number. You can interpolate the number. Based on what they see, of course, you get in and there's termites or all sorts, but, but those are the sorts of things you, you that's why you bake in 10 to 15% on 
on overage. But in this particular case, what I'm finding most often, especially when I'm coaching or consulting other landlords, is the fact that they don't know what they don't know. They don't even see the risks that they're taking because it hasn't been a problem yet. And they don't see the problem where them just driving around and picking up rent, they don't really ever value their time. So they don't even see goofy things that they're making mistakes on. And they go, well, if I don't drive around, I won't get it. And I'm thinking, that's a game not worth winning. And you're not setting up the proper infrastructure to replace themselves as quickly as possible. So more often than not, I'm seeing mistakes of just ignorance or just things that they just didn't think about because it hasn't been an issue. You could shadow another landlord, but I almost think it's from the tribal method, you're learning more bad mistakes, to be honest with you. (laughs) I do have a question for Mark, if that's okay. So one of the things you might hear on this barrier of entry is people that want to talk about, well, what if I get a property on land contract or if I can buy it with seller financing? That obviously, if you can find a seller that wants to sell on a land contract or financing, that would lower your barrier of entry. What advice would you give to somebody who would try to rebuttal you on saying it's easier than what you previously stated because I have these options in place? And that's certainly one of the things that you could do. You could buy a property on contract, but the contract's going to have to allow you to do that because a lot of contracts, a lot of owners may not want you to purchase the property for the purpose of renting it out. So the contract may stipulate that you're not allowed to do that. So that would be one thing that I'd be careful about. But as long as you're allowed to do that, you could get into the property, but you got to understand from that side, you can lower your risk. But then again, I think from that side of things where if you can mitigate the risk by allowing, getting very, very favorable contract terms, right? Like you're going to have a a balloon that's going to be pushed out into the future and you're not going to be looking at a two-year balloon or three-year balloon because this is the whole point. They want to get cashed out, right? So if you can mitigate those risks by having a very favorable contract that allows you to do what you need to do, then I don't see a problem with that whatsoever. In fact, I've done that a couple of different times. In fact, that's how I was able to build up part of my portfolio back in 2006 and 2007 because there was a guy who had 20-something units that he just he didn't want to be a landlord anymore, and he sold them to me all on contract. So from that side of things, I think it's great, but you have to make sure that that contract is written in a way that allows you to do what you need to do as a landlord. Easy enough. Well, easy said anyway. <laughs> There's a lot of people out there that are in pain though. And Eric, you bring up a great point. There's a lot of people out there that are, they don't want to be landlords anymore because they've gotten, they, they're just, they're so emotionally spent because they've never set it up as a business. They never set it up to be scalable to where they are removed as the bottleneck for all the information to pass through. And it's their fault. They won't admit it, but it's their fault. And, and I, it, that was the problem that I had back in 2008, 2009 was I was running 92 rental units all by myself. And my life was a complete and total disaster. So I'll own it because I was the one that created that problem. That sounds like a disaster, like you said. <laughs> if, if you can imagine the, a photo of the Hindenburg, that's kind of what I look like. We're, we're, getting, we're getting into a great segue for risks here. So Yeah, yeah, we are. And you're going to start us, so go ahead, Eric. One of the things that when it comes to fix and flip is there's a lot of great risks involved. As Mark was just talking about of dealing with headache landlords and people who just want to sell out. The risks usually are not any less when it comes to fix and flips. You have to know what area you're buying in. You have to know what's wrong with the property. For someone starting out on there, you can mitigate those risks by hiring a professional inspector to come in or even a general contractor to come in, pinpoint everything wrong with the house. You're going to spend a few hundred dollars to make sure first few times you do it. You're going to spend about four to $600 to make sure that you have everything pinpointed if this house is wrong. Even more if it's a foundation inspection. 
along those lines. With those inspections, you can mitigate your risk on any property that you're going into. And for people that says, well, I don't want to spend four to $600 on the inspection. From somebody who has made a mistake, you're going to spend thousands and thousands yeah. more if you decide to go at it alone. One of my current flips I have right now, we did a sump pump irrigation that pumps water to the outside, but the inspector found a sub pump on the inside and was trying to find out what was going on with it. Now, because mm-hmm. they found a sub pump inside, they pretty much wanted a first time home buyer say, we want this company specifically to fix this issue. And instead of $4,000, it was $7,000 just to remediate that fix to put a, a sub pump in a crawl space. Yeah, there's no way I could really go against that unless I just wanted to back the buyer out and then try to find another one. But for me, it'd be easier to deal with this one because it was a strong buyer. So I went ahead and went with it and got it taken care of. But I didn't have an inspection done on that one. That one I'm going to hurt a little bit on. But I also have two other flips where I'm going to make good money on. The one I'm currently in right now, I should set to make about $25,000, which is okay in the uh, society market, at least in the $230,000 price point. But yeah, with, with fix and flips, you have to find every problem because it's not like a tenant's going to move in there and they can live with an older bathtub for a little bit. An inspector's going to come in that's professional, that's hired by the buyer to find everything that's wrong with your house. And then it's going to be up to you to make sure that that gets fixed. Right. Mark, anything to question or add to that? You're 100% right, because I run into the same problem with people that you're talking about inspections. That's kind of your insurance policy for, for the transaction, right? Yes. On the, on the front end. Well, I run into the same problem when I, when I cannot believe the amount of people that look at credit reporting or, or uh, when you're running an application on, a, on an applicant for, uh, for as, a, as, a, as a tenant, when they look at that as a commodity, right? So you know that there's good inspectors and there's bad inspectors. And just like there's good credit reporting and bad credit reporting, some of it is very, it's just a, it's just a commodity. They, 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 they get it 30, 60 days in arrears. And meanwhile, this person's currently being evicted today. And there are certain of them out there that just, it's just a data dump. They just, you know, okay, pull the credit, check the box, and that's it. Meanwhile, that individual is getting evicted that day. So it really is, you really have to value not just the information, but what the information represents and how you're getting it. So I think that's, that's a very good in terms of risk. I didn't know if you actually valued it as a number, but one of the things in terms of the risks that I have a question for you about is what happens when you're in you obviously have a preferred set of subs that you use, which kind of removes you as the bottleneck from doing all the work. So that's great. And this is something that I deal with as a property manager all the time is what happens when one of those subs gets flaky. If everybody right now is having the same problem in terms of labor, there's a huge labor shortage out there for just people to show up for an interview for God's sakes, right? <laughs> you know, I feel like I want to give away a free Vespa for anybody that wants to show up for an interview. But uh, my biggest concern there, is... Come on. <laughs> it's actually not my phone. It's one of my sons. Oh, there is. There go. <laughs> so it, that's to my point, though. Is though what happens? What do you? How do you mitigate the risk for when one of your subs gets flaky? Whether it's them themselves or their guys don't show up or anything like that. So how do you mitigate that risk? I'm glad you brought this up because the way how everything's going along those lines, contractors are probably very similar to tenants where. On paper, they're going to look very good. Their Angie's List reviews or Google reviews show good, but um, they completely flake on you and, or they just got a better paying job with a retail client and just completely yeah. go off. So one of the things we actually do is we, re- we always have our general contractor at the, um, I'm trying to think of the proper terminology for right now, but it's contractor contract along those lines. It states, this is what you're quoting the job for. This is who's providing the materials for this job. Along those lines, here's a W-9 that we also need you to fill out. So that way 
we can report it for taxes along those lines. And then you also have one of the biggest things that we have in all of the contracts is a deadline date. So if I have a contract that says this is going to take about four weeks to complete, we'll say, okay, we'll just put on this contract, we'll put the contract six weeks out. And then if it's still going on after six weeks, it's a deducted $100 a day from what your proposed quote is. So there's one way to mitigate that. But once again, once you get into that and you get into a dispute, you have to take it to small claims court to go on those lines just as you evict a tenant, go into uh, getting the judgment against them as well towards that. But I have that contract going out there. And actually, the last contracts I got were other referrals from other investors. So generally, the GC that I have right now pretty much works primarily with me and the other investor that referred him to me. He's very selective on the investors he chooses, which is good for me. And I've used it for four projects right now. And other than the hiccup we had with the Macaulay one, everything else has been absolutely smooth. So I'm very lucky to have the general contractor now. But yeah, he signed the contract. He gave me W-9. I did a been verified report on him along those lines just to make sure that he is what he says he is. He's been in his business for over six, seven years. Along those lines, he's been in construction for over 20 years. And he doesn't have a criminal record, which to me, it's actually the question I was going to ask you here shortly was what's the biggest criteria you have for your tenants? Because I know for my properties on there, I care more about the criminal report and the eviction report than so much for the credit report. So in terms of risks where I see it, I'm going to go so far as to rate it as a one. I think that real estate is one of those things that is absolutely, completely and totally forgiving if you buy and hold, even in your own industry. What's the fallback? Well, I can't sell it, so I'll rent it. <laughs> and, and if you hold on to that long enough, eventually the equity will catch up. And where does cash flow come from? Cash flow comes from equity. So it's very forgiving. And that's the one thing where even if you're not getting, well, people say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lose money every month because my mortgage payment is 800 and, and I'm only able to get 600 a month out of this rental. Well, okay, I get that. But you're still getting someone paying two thirds of your mortgage for you. And then obviously you're going to have other expenses, but my point is it's very, very forgiving. So if you have to contribute to this annuity on the front end for five or maybe 10 years, you're going to get the annuity payment at the back end eventually. Unless you just bought something completely underwater on the banks of Chernobyl, it's not going to work out that way. But realistically, real estate is very, very forgiving when it comes to that. That's why I rated you one. But in terms of mitigating the risk for the, the residents, my background is in accounting as well. So this is like a nerd fest. I, I love it. But, but the, the people, you got to understand the, the metrics that you're getting into. They're climbing into bed and they get so wrapped around other things that don't matter. But it's, it's those intricacies. About, well, I don't care if you're looking at it cash on cash or cap rate or IRR or however you want to slice and dice it. You have to consider how you're going to get those, how those metrics are going to be delivered. How is it going to happen? What's the management? What's the boots on the ground that's going to get you to those metrics? And a lot of times, especially with landlords, they say, oh, well, I can get this property and I'll rent it for that much. And they don't ever value their time, the time that they're going to put into it. So that's the problem. But from what I'm looking at it, when I'm, to answer your question, Eric, when I'm underwriting someone, I underwrite them just as if I was going to extend them, if it's a thousand a month, as if I'm going to extend them $12,000 worth of credit. And that's how I underwrite it. And I look at it and it's not just like you said, criminal background reporting, which is extremely important because most drug crimes are actually happening within rental properties. And that's, that's a fact. You don't want that nonsense going on in your, in your, uh, in your rental property, but you want to make sure that you, you're making a calculated risk and you're not setting anybody else up to fail. 
So underwrite them just like as if you would underwrite anybody else. Look at their expenses. Look at their credit. Maybe they've got a bad score. But what's the score about? What's making up their credit report in general? Look at their payments. What payments are they making? Are they making these payments? And those are the things that's really, really much more important than someone coming to me with a 720. I want to look and see what their expenses are based on the job that they have. So I'm really, I'm, I'm underwriting it just like, uh, just like I would any other bank loan, to be honest with you. And I completely forgot to add, I'm glad you brought up the, the ranks of what we're doing. For fix and flips, I would actually put out of four. There is a lot of risk that goes involved with it. As you said, we have to buy it at a certain price to be able to make sure we make a profit towards it. Also, the fact is that one of the things is once you're about to sell it, you have people that are literally working against you to make sure that they get you to get as big, best deals possible or make sure the house is in best shape as possible. Yeah. So if you don't do those properly to begin with, it's going to hurt you when you try to sell it. And the thing that really annoys me about people not in your industry, I think it's unfair, but they're going to look at you and they're going to say, well, what did Eric pay for that property? Well, I'm not paying that. He paid 150000 two months ago. I'm not paying two twenty five. That's ridiculous. He's ripping me off. It does, they don't look at value. They look at see what you paid for as if that's some metric that should matter. It doesn't matter that you put 30 grand in improvements and now the house may be worth 250, but they don't want to pay that 225. It's very unfair, but unfortunately, that's also another thing that you're up against. I've been fortunate enough where I've never had that issue. I've had people ask what I bought before from property. I've been upfront for them too, and then I tell them exactly what I put into it. Good. So I never had that pushback, and it could be because of the market, but they'd be in a seller's market saying, well, right. if I'm going to back away, I have two more people where it's going to take my place. <laughs> right. so, so, but yeah, I've heard stories where people think exactly like that. But yeah, when you go to sell it, there are going to be people that are going to fight against you about the house. And that's why, to me, it's a, it's a heavier risk than, than a buy hold is. Great. And before we moved on, I just wanted to mention to all the best ever listeners and viewers watching and listening to this, you can head over to bestovershowcommunity.com and vote on which strategy you prefer or who you thought debated better. And I'm pretty sure, didn't we say the loser's going to do some burpees? Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing mine offline. <laughs> we'll yeah, just I take really your word for it. <laughs> okay. You guys covered everything with risks. And we're on to returns now. So, Mark, we'll head back to you. What do you have to say about returns on the buy and hold side? Buy and hold side, you have to buy them right. I mean, it goes to the same thing with, with what Eric was saying, but I'm going to do some voodoo math here because I'm going to rate it as a four. And the reason why I rate that so high is because there's one nuclear button that, the, that I can't understand even why the IRS allows this, but the 1031 tax-free exchange that happens when you sell a property and you can roll that into another property. If that didn't exist, this number would be far less. But when you can get those properties, and, and I, I have to give my disclosure because I am a licensed broker and I can't give tax advice and all that stuff. So <clears throat> definitely talk to a good tax preparer that can get you into that and get you the right information. But when you have a property that you've held for a while, and again, you've got some substantial equity in the property and the equity returns, are you can get more cash that can make more return for you Absolutely. It makes sense to roll that, but that if that 1031 exchange did not occur, I'm telling you the return would be far, far less. And that's a big plus because you can take that equity that you've got in that property, roll that into another property tax-free, and man, that is a huge, huge plus. 
And then it resets the depreciation clock and everything else. So there's a lot of pluses there. I think the returns, that's why, I mean, I read it as a four only because I know you can get some knock to cover off the ball. And I will admit this, you can get some knock to cover off the ball flips out there. When you buy a great property and it makes a lot of sense to not hold it for very long and you can turn it. And I did one this year actually, but it's all part of a larger strategy in terms of what I take that money and put it into more buy and hold stuff. So that's why I rated it as high as I did. That makes sense. Eric, do you have a question or anything for Mark? No, he explained it greatly. One of the biggest benefits for rentals is the fact that you can pretty much sell a few of them that are like-minded properties and be able to roll into higher properties, higher apartments at a tax advantage. Once again, I'm also a licensed agent, so I'm not disclosing CPA or legal advice. Love all the disclaimers here. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, that is one of the huge benefits. And as you talked about with fixing flips, just to give the example of the one I'm in right now, all in, including my closing costs for this property, I'm probably going to need about 195000 because we like easier numbers here. Let's just write it up to $200,000. I have it listed for $230,000. So my purchase and repairs, I bought this for one twenty-two. I think I'm about 50 into it. So I'm at one seventy-two. Without With me being a licensed realtor, I can save about 3% on the list side as well when I list the property. So I'm saving money there as a caveat. My closing costs would only be about $15,000. And that's at the highest end. So at that, I'm about, let's just say $200,000 for easy math. So if I sell it at $230,000, that nets me $30,000 on, let's just say, a six-month project because I bought this late March. It's late June right now. So let's just say it takes another three months for me to close it, which it definitely shouldn't be in this market. So $30,000, six months. My own cash into this is about $40,000. So over that time, I'm making over 100% return on my money just because if you use the APR of an annualized basis along those lines, technically I'm making off my $40,000, $60,000 off the annualized for only holding it for six months. So yeah, I'm over 100% return just as he was talking about. So the returns can be very high. They can also be very low where I'm on my college property where I had to spend $7,000. I'm even making $1,000 off a $70,000 return. And that one I had for about four months. So you can do the percentages if you really want to on there, but that return was not worth it in my opinion. The only benefit to that one was the fact is that I put out my own bandit signs that look like realtor signs out in front. And the house I actually bought in that area was actually a lead from my bandit sign. So using a house that even though I made a horrible return on, I got another house project in the process. So on the good ones, you can easily make very high double digit returns. I would say triple digits, maybe a little bit bit of rarity unless you want to use the breakdown number I did, but it's very common to see over 30% returns on good fix and flips that have properly been done and properly calculated. So that's kind of interesting. Mark, I'll, I'll let you rebuttal as well. I also had a question. I know you're an experienced flipper and we've talked many times. You definitely know what you're doing. How come Macaulay turned out the way you did? The reason I ask is because, you know, you think with experience, you avoid things like that happening, but apparently with experience, things like that still happen. It's very simple. I broke one of the cardinal rules when it came to real estate. I got emotional about the property. It was an off-market property with a realtor, which as of right now, if realtors can provide you good off-market deals, you want to find a way to get connection with them to do so. So with this property, I thought it would be my way in to go in there. So originally when I looked at the numbers, we did 95000 for $30,000 into it along those lines. And then we were going to sell it at one fifty. So that $30,000 became $50,000, including the inspection contingencies along those lines. And then also 
I actually sold it for a higher price, but with my closing costs attached with that, it just became more of a wash along those lines. So yeah, I was at 140. My closing costs, I think were about $12,000. So 152. And then there's a few other things in there that kind of negated the $8,000 return. I haven't done the full numbers on it. So it may be more than a thousand dollars what I was expecting, but I was buying it on lower margins than what I usually do because it was an off market realtor property. And it was on a decent road in a very hot area that I really wanted to flip more properties in. So I was willing to take the lower margin because I knew I could put my, one of my signs out there and get more leads on the properties. Because one of my biggest leads, and I'm thinking the proper term, where people know you're a closer. So your confidence factor, credibility, that's what I was looking for. So when people see that you're already flipping a house in their area, you have that credibility factor when they call you and they want to sell a house, knowing that down the street you're already flipping another house. So I took a lower margin onto it. I didn't have an inspection done, which was one of my biggest mistakes on this one because it was a crawl space. I didn't want to deal with going in the crawl space and that was my biggest things that hurt me. And that's something that I want to talk to as well because it, every time we make a mistake in my own property management business or in, in, as a landlord, it's almost always when we go outside of our system. And that's where I have a question for you, Eric, is that like one of the things that I teach specifically is how to make this systematic. How can I put a system in place that you do the same thing every single time with inspections? It's a perfect example. So one of the things that I do, and that's one of the things that I teach is how do I put, how do I build it as a business? Because my, my biggest thing that I want to do is I want to create time wealth for people. I want to create the ability for them to control their calendar and that I want to give them more life output. I want to give them so they're not beholden to doing this thing. And that from the landlording side, I see that it's, it's actually not that difficult to do. On your side, I see it very labor intensive. There are obviously companies that can do that, that have been very intentional about building a system around it. But I think for the individual person, and again, this is just because of my belief window, I see this being so much easier to put a system in place. Yes, you're right. You're dealing with the human factor a lot more than, than in your side. But you're still dealing with the human factor, right? You're still dealing with subs and you're still dealing with inspectors. And you're still dealing with other realtors, which is talk about egos, right? You're talking about some, some <laughs> right? Some, I mean, you, we, we both know what that's like. But that's the side that I see it to be the most challenging to make that systematic where you just didn't create another job for yourself. Granted, you may have great returns sometimes, but when you look at opportunity cost on that $70,000 deal that you had, you actually lost money, right? On an opportunity cost perspective. And I've done the same exact thing. Whenever we make a mistake with a resident or an owner that we bring on board, it's almost always because we go outside of what we're good at. So my question to you is how do you make that systematic? Or, I mean, is it really, do you, just, you just have to do it to where you just get so big, then you just are able to do that? Or, I mean, how, how can a small individual investor make this systematic where they're not just creating a job for themselves? That's an amazing question as a rehabber because yeah, ultimately when people talk about real estate, they say the way you're going to get the true passive wealth is through landlording, buy and hold, syndications and everything on those lines. But essentially what they say is wholesaling and fix and flips are going to be the steroids that boost up to what exactly you want to do. And the way that people have built businesses throughout fix and flips was one, it all depends on your skill sets. If you would much rather be on the field, check out your properties day to day along those lines, then you can hire out the subs, get a lower cost, get a higher return. If you don't want to do that, I'm one of those people that I proudly announce of how lazy I am. So me, I, I interviewed, <laughs> I interviewed probably seven to eight full-throated general contractors. 
um, to make sure that they knew exactly what I was talking about. And I would interview them just as I would like a middle manager, a project manager, an asset manager, or anybody else along those lines. And I'm eventually going to want on my team. So I checked out their projects. I saw what they did. And the GC I have right now has their own operations manager. So like the only managing I do is either through text messages. Now, because I still want to be diligent, I always check out my properties at least twice a week, but I only stay about 10 to 15 minutes per house along those lines. And if there is an issue that we go on there, we put it down in writing. I'm out within 30 minutes, usually for most of the time. They have it in writing of what exactly we need to do to solve the problem. And they go and just set it in motion. So for those who want to kind of back off, you are going to spend more for a general contractor than you are going to be subbing it yourself. But like you said, your value is ultimately your time. So for me, I only spend about an hour a week in each one of my properties when I'm fixing and flipping. And then the operations manager, GC, take care of their own subs and everything along those lines. Now, I do want to add in, there is a risk to that, making sure that for each job you do, make sure that you get the release of waiver from the subs as well once the project is finished. That way, if there's an issue with the general contractor not paying a sub, they can't come after you for the property. So I will add that to the risk of something to keep a lookout for. But yeah, ultimately when it comes to your business, you said, here's what I'm willing to do. Here's what I'm not willing to do. For me, handyman skill side was not my forte. So I wanted to pay more for somebody that I knew with knowledgeable and trust. And just like with any other business, you're going to hire slow and fire fast. So I went through seven general contractors or I interviewed seven general contractors. This is probably my third rotation on an actual team. And they've already lasted about four projects for me, where usually the average has been about two or three for me before in the past. So this one's already at four. We're still going strong. We still have a great communication record. Things to make it easier for us as well for communication was we went into a program called Buildium, which is like a very high-end program, which pretty much outlines everything in an app format. That way, there is no questions back and forth along those lines. That way, I could focus on either raising money or finding more deals, the things I really want to do. I also recently hired an acquisition manager that meets up with the sellers along those lines where if I can, they at least can, they know how to lock up the contract and send it to the title company. And then I can just focus in on getting the money for it. So yeah, as you're building up, the first and foremost is going to be your crew. You want a good general contractor. You want a good insurance agent. And then just, as you say, very slowly building up just as you buy from one rental property to the next one, to the next one, then you do a 1031 to a multi-unit, you would just build up that way. Right. Did you have a number, assuming you buy right, follow the the cardinal rules, what would you Um, say the returns? The returns, I I usually uh, um, negotiate that. So the numbers I used in the past for a $150,000 house that needs about $30,000 in work, I essentially want a $40,000 gross. So that means my all-in, I have to be at one ten dollars for that forty gross. And then with it being a $30,000 rehab, that means I need to buy it around $80,000. Started at 75 for a little bit better and then started at 80. And then knowing that my top number is 80,000, but I don't do it by percentages really. I do that when it's fun about to sell it and see what my returns are. But when I go to buy it, I do with a minimum gross amount that I do just for the easier math as I walk through the house. In terms of one to five for the, for our debate, what would you give it? About a I think, I think, I think if done properly, I would do, I would definitely do five. So. Okay. If done properly, it's definitely a big yes. part of it. Well, I, mean, I think there's a caveat for all real estate. If yeah. done properly, you can make yes. a fortune. <laughs> so we're on to our last point, which will be maintainable in a downturn. And I just wanted to point out, I know we allocated an hour, so I want to be respectful of everyone's time. We're coming up on about eight minutes. So 
if you guys want to move a little bit faster or if you have a little extra time, I will leave that up to you guys. And maintainable in a downturn. I think, Mark, you started with... Yeah, I started with barrier. Okay, yeah. So, so you're up on maintainable in a downturn. Okay. So, uh, me or Eric? Eric is. You're right. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Grant. So, maintainable in a downturn, I would probably put it about two. Now, for this for difficulty or is this uh, for uh, main, maintaining? Because I, I have it at very, very relatively difficult. So. Okay, yeah. One would be easy. Okay, then I, I'll put this at a four then. Okay. So, because, I mean, essentially what it's going to be is in the downturn, you have to have a higher level of clientele that can qualify for mortgages and everything along those lines. So in a downturn, they're going to realize that it's now a buyer's market and you're going to have to adjust for it. So it's one of those things where if you know you're getting to a correction or a downturn, houses are currently selling for 155000 Even with you putting all this work into it, you might adjust your numbers to say, this is probably going to sell at 145 or 150 I might be able to get 155 but I'm going to be paying every closing cost under the book as well. So I would adjust downward at least 5 to 10% depending on how the market is moving and definitely keeping a sharp eye on how the credit market is going and how the number of refinances and uh, mortgages being applied for in the stock market and watching CNBC for those numbers because that's going to give you an idea of how to differentiate your percentages on how to calculate it. But yeah, for a $155,000 house, I would probably do 145 just to be safe. And then one of the things we always talked about is in a seller's market, you can go for almost any level you want as long as you know the ARV. So where I'm doing a lot of higher end type things, just to try to test the market and test uh, really what the top is on it. In a down market, you're going to have to kind of put in these flashy features knowing that you're going to have to sell it for less than what's being sold for right now as well. So where right now I'm testing out ports, uh, testing out backsplash, testing out Bluetooth speakers on there. I may have to put those in anyways and still readjust my price in a downturn market, knowing that it's like, hey, these are cool features, but now I have the upper hand. So I'm still going to negotiate this and find a middle ground for you. It's going to help your property sell faster, but in a downturn, it's not going to really increase the value as you're going to see it for right now. So you would definitely have to be very careful of mixing in those splashes of pop in the house and what it can truly sell for, for MasterNet. So yeah, in a downturn, it is going to be difficult to maintain. And along those lines is too, where if you can't get the number you want into it, you may have to look into selling an online contract or a lease option to sell your home a few years down the road and not be completely bit. Or you might have to sell and just take the loss and move on to the next one. So Be a landlord. Yeah, that'd be horrible. <laughs> so you're saying the backup plan is being a landlord. Okay. <laughs> No, but that's absolutely right. And I think that you're being fair in terms of to yourself in terms of the risk rating. I do agree with you. I think it is a lot more risk because you, we, we all know there's going to be a correction. We just don't know when and what it's going to look like and that sort of thing. Of course, the last correction was more of a labor market correction than it really was a real estate correction, even though it, I mean, it was the labor market problem, right? Even though it wasn't a real estate problem. I, I was having problems for eight months when the guys on CNBC started coming down and saying, wow, things are really starting to get bad out there. And meanwhile, I'm the bellwether for the, the tenants that are not paying rent. I had $65,000 a month coming in in revenues, and that went from $65,000 a month to $30,000 a month, and that was month over month over month, and it sucked. And mostly because I was overleveraged, not so much financially. I mean, I was overleveraged financially, but I was all overleveraged in time as well. I just didn't – I mean, that was a whole other issue, so – I think I, I'm rating this as a two in terms of uh, being able to weather in the down market. 
if you are appropriately leveraged. If you're over leveraged, I don't think, I mean, there's nothing that's going to be able to save you. Even in an up market, you're going to have problems. But if you're appropriately leveraged, and I can't tell you what that is, and that doesn't necessarily mean that, I mean, you can buy a property with 100% in, that's fine. If you've got 30 grand in the bank, that can help you weather that storm or 50 grand or whatever that is, whatever that number is for you to help weather the storm for 12 months, then you're okay. But I'm talking from a global portfolio of being deleveraged. So if you've got, you can buy a property fully, fully leveraged, but you've got cash in the bank, that's fine. If you want to put $50,000 down on a $100,000 house, that's fine, whatever it is. But I'm just looking at global leverage there. So from my aspect, I put it as two because now again, even if you don't get someone that fully pays the mortgage, even if they're only paying 80 or 90% of it, they're still paying a good chunk of it. And that's going to get you to the other side of that bridge to help build that annuity. I do have to I'll do a couple little remarks here because I feel like the tables have definitely turned on me for a little bit. One of, one of the big things you mentioned on there is if the tenant's paying along those lines where we had the labor market really go in, the one main downside I know I had on there where I had a lot of mechanics that were in some of my buildings. And when I say a lot of buildings, I own like 30 units, so I'm not trying to solve the big shot here. But we had like about five or six mechanics on there that got laid off and they pretty much were leaving off their savings for about two years. And when they couldn't afford to pay along those lines, those five people pretty much like dropped all at the same time. Now for a non-payment of rent issue at the beginning of the month, pay or get out, do the three-day notice and two weeks later can get them out. If you deal with any other tenants that are just being unruly and you want to get rid of them, we have to do a 30-day notice. So you're stuck with them for 30 days, knowing that they are about to be kicked out 30 days later. That might cause a little bit more issues to the property while it's not being paid. And I think you bring up a good point, though, because it is going to be based on location. Because I know if you were living in the People's Republic of New York, you're just wrong. You're wrong for being a landlord. Get used to it. That's what. That's the way it is, right? And I grew up in yeah. there. I grew up in that state. So you know, sorry to my brothers and sisters and friends out there that are living there. But you know, hey, you chose to stay there, and I, I can't. In, in a state that's so legislatively against you every step of the way, it's hard for me to defend against that. So you're right there. Indiana is a very landlord-friendly state. I think it's reasonable. I'm not going to say it's it's just all, all all about the landlord. It's not, but it is it is tended it does tend to favor the landlord and compared to other states. So it is going to matter the location in terms of the legislation and the ordinances that you're up against as well. That's a very valid point. And that could certainly skew the difficulty in a downturn and the risk factor as well. I did make those remarks as well, but as you said, there are a few States out there that maybe that it could be very beneficial for a landlord. Whereas for fix and flip the inspectors and the permit departments that you're going to have, I like Butler County up here in the area because I can normally get permits done relatively quickly. But one of the things that could slow down on a flip is like having an inspector in the city of Cincinnati or just scheduling one to be about two weeks out. And if they find one small issue, you're now scheduled another two weeks out to get that taken care of. Right. Now, granted, if you have a good crew that knows what they're doing, they can go off to other projects around the house, but you're still stuck those two weeks until you can get that taken care of. So, yeah, just, just as it is for landowning laws on there, your permit inspections, and that can even vary by county as well for good counties and bad counties um, exactly. for your fixed flips to get permits and making sure you're doing your job properly. Right. All right. Well, thank you both very much for that. We'll wrap it up now with some closing <laughs> statements. And I do believe I have my order right this time. We'll start with Mark. <laughs> I think really that fundamentally, if it comes down to someone who really wants to be able to control their calendar and create time wealth in their life, where you're not looking at the number of transactions that you have to do in a certain period of time, Honestly, I think this strategy would be for you. 
Eric? The ultimate road to Ralph is through passive income, like Mark said. But to get the steroid boosts and everything along those lines, you got to know real estate, you got to know values. The best way you're going to be able to do that is in the front lines, either wholesaling or fixed and flipping. And once you get into a good few fixed and flips, good, bad, or the ugly, you're going to know so much more about real estate than if you just passively invested your money throwing into it. So starting out with fixed and flips, going from there, keep you doing them to earn another twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars per flip. You know, four of which you're going to get over a hundred thousand dollars a year just off of four properties along those lines, which can really help your portfolio down the road. And even at a part-time basis, four houses a year is very manageable for the experienced investors to do. So it's definitely good to have something in your repertoire and continue doing. Once you master it, it's going to be that nice bit of income. And if you know how to adjust for a downturn, even though it is going to be a lot more of a risk, you know exactly how to negotiate with your contractors, you know exactly what you need to do in a downturn market to continue getting those twenty dollars to $30,000 net checks that will help you get towards that passive wealth. All right. Well, best ever listeners, thank you for tuning in to the third best ever debate. And again, this will be in the best ever show community.com, which is our Facebook group. You can go on there, comment, let us know how we did today. Let us know who you think won the argument. Me, myself, I kind of like a combination of the two with a famous Burr strategy. So maybe we need to have someone come on and be the third debater here. Anyway, I hope everyone has a best ever weekend. Very good. Eric, so you do seven burpees and I'll do eight then, all right? Does that, does that sound like a fair compromise? That's, that sounds fair. <laughs> That's fair, you know. <laughs> I can make that deal, so. Okay. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart. Get the word out about their cause and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com. And there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. Have you heard about the latest podcast for entrepreneurs called Tough Decisions? Listen to Dan and Danae Hanford as they interview successful people from around the world about tough decisions as entrepreneurs. Visit toughdecisions.net and be sure to subscribe to their free weekly entrepreneurial email. That's toughdecisions.net.